Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. There are very few writers who do become, as it were, sort of politically influential. I mean, very few writers of literature, I mean, or, or journalists come to that. He has. I mean, you mentioned the word Orwellian. It's quite interesting, the writers who do, in fact, become adjectives, like Dickensian, for instance, or Laurentian. <laughs> and uh, very few women. You don't talk about Wolfian writers in the same way you talk about Orwellian disciples. But uh, I think, I don't know, it, it, it is what you might call you know, a moot point. Is reading multisensory, and how does our sense of smell control our memories, emotions, and political consciousness? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle these questions by poking and playing with the smell narratives in the writings of George Orwell. Yes, think 1984, Animal Farm, and coming up for air with a bit of a whiff. This evening, I'm joined by one of Britain's most prolific and original writers, the great John Sutherland, author of A Little History of Literature, How to Be Well Read, and Can Jane Eyre Be Happy? Yeah, and that's only three of 30. In Orwell's Nose, a pathological biography, author, biographer, and literary critic John Sutherland writes There are many threads in Orwell's fiction, but it is interesting to compile their smell narratives. John goes on to quote British political theorist and critic Bernard Crick, who observed that from the earliest days, Orwell grew to associate smell with oppression. So what makes for an aromatic novel? And how did George Orwell use his unique sense of smell to frame some of the most iconic fiction, journalism and questions of the 20th century? Hello, my name is John Sutherland. Uh, I'm an academic. I have a a rather preposterous title. I'm the Lord Northcliffe Professor Emeritus of Modern English Literature at University College London. Now, in fact, what I am is a retired professor who's now what they call a hackademic. That's to say, I, I do journalism and I write books on things that, that interest me, that, I, you know, that I've always wanted to get round to writing. So um, I suppose... I'm just not quite over the hill, but uh, certainly sort of uh, on the other side of it. And uh, there's a kind of freedom in it. You can think without necessarily having to consider whether or not it's going to please the powers, the authorities that, that do control one's career performance. So, you know, that's me. I'm a free agent now. Free as in free fall, perhaps, but a free agent. John, I love that a academic. <laughs> it's 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 an interesting title. I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with, if that's okay. Was Orwell obsessed with dirt? Yeah, uh, he was half French. People tend to forget that, um, and he had a very French attitude. The French, the French you know, have much more kind of respect for the nose than we do. I mean, 
if you think about Puritan societies like the English or American, they're deeply into deodorizing things. Mm. I've seen statistics that suggest that up to 90% of, of Americans and British use deodorants because they regard smell as associated with, I think, with hell, really, you know, with a sulfurous smell. Uh, whereas heaven, one imagines, has got no smell apart from that of, uh, uh, of freshly washed linen. But it's interesting, because the French, in fact, have cultivated the arts of smell, particularly things like wine and food. You can't taste food unless you can smell it properly. You can't enjoy wine unless you can... If you see a French person drinking a glass of wine and compare it to an English person sloshing back a pint of bitter or an Irish person drinking Guinness, uh, they're very different. And as I say, Orwell was half French, and he had this kind of sort of sensitivity of the nose. He also had a terrific ability to discriminate the elements that go into a scent, smell, or fragrance. Yeah, there are people, in fact, I think, who can listen to an orchestra and know what every instrument is doing. I can't. It just sounds like a block noise to me. But Orwell is the same with smell. If you look at some of the descriptions, for example, of what the hero's concubine smells like in Burmese Days, his first published novel. He distinguishes the garlic from the cinnamon, from the, the oils. And he, he sees a symphony of smell. And you get that on almost every page in all. And at the same time, he has this fascination with disgusting smells. And, of course, he made that uh, remark which uh, haunts him and is really excommunicated him from orthodox socialist thinking. You know, the working classes smell, he said in The Road to Wigan Pier. He did contextualize it rather carefully, but, you know, that's what one remembers. He thought that people below him in social standing smelled. You describe him as a shadowy figure and you write in your conclusions that Orwell's life was a long game of roulette. I thought that was very, very interesting when we consider that, you know, Orwell is one of the giants of literature. Yeah, he's very elusive. There is no moving picture of Orwell. And this is a man who worked for the BBC, uh, who is fascinated by television, Uh, who was a film critic at one time. But there, there are no moving pictures. And just the same old, very few sort of photographs of him. It, it's very strange. Uh, and so too with the records that he left. He was very careful to cover his tracks. It was almost as if he were paranoid, as if he were worried that, you know, the, the telescreen was watching him. Big Brother was had implanted a microphone. As a result, he's a terrific challenge to biographers. I think the best biography, I mean, his official biographer, Bernard Crick, has the most facts. One of Orwell's deathbed requests to his second wife, Sonia, was no biography, and she held out for a long time. Crick, as I say, Bernard Crick, the official biographer, has got the facts, but the most sensitive biography is by a novelist, D.J. Taylor. But to go back to your question, he's shadowy, he's elusive. Uh, And that makes him more fascinating, of course. He's certainly not straightforward, and certainly when it came to his um, sexual habits, they make for extraordinary reading. He's known also to have turned political writing into art. Do you think that's a bit overhyped? I don't know. I mean, it's sort of every school... (laughs) in the United Kingdom gets, you know, sort of Orwell's, you know, sort of uh, good writing is like a pane of glass and, and you know, how to write plainly uh, thrust at them. And, 
you know, there, there is a kind of orthodoxy that says that, you know, the simplicity, you know, make it simple is very much his, his motto. The simplicity of high style is what, what you should go for. In fact, I mean, I think, you know, language is more complex than that. But, you know, sort of, I think in that respect, I think he's a bit on, 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 on the wrong trail. What he did believe was that how you use language is intimately connected to your thought. The whole principle of new speak in 1984 is that you, if you take away people's language, you take away their political thinking. And you know, that's very much a lesson, I think, which, which all politicians should think about. One of the reasons, I think, that they've kept English uh, as one of the STEM subjects in, in this country is that intuitively people know that unless you can use language well, you're not going to think very well. Uh, and all was very much, I think, uh, of that mind. I think that was very much an Orwellian sort of concept. He had great advice on how to write and I suppose really how to think. But one of his um, nuggets that I thought was particularly relevant would be to certainly some of our um, international politicians. He advised never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Superb advice, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, And one should bear that in mind with the fact that Orwell was terrifically good at picking up languages. I mean, he said at one point, he's very modest about it. He didn't claim great things for himself. But he said at one point that uh, he'd mastered six languages, two of them dead. And yet you never get him dropping a grandiloquent Greek or Latin phraseology into his writing. He occasionally uses a, a French word where the English word doesn't come to mind, but very little. So... He didn't want to really put on the style, if you know what I mean, because very often when people use foreign words, it's to impress you, and and sometimes to imply that they're better educated than you are. He hated that. You know, he was, was, uh, as as a stylist, he, he believed that a close, naked, natural way of speaking, you know, was the way to go. And he was absolutely right, of course. I mean, if you teach, as I've done in higher education and elsewhere, you realise that saying things short and simple is the hardest of exercises, but what you should really aim to do. You write that Orwell's higher journalism is one of the glories of English literary culture. Not everyone would agree with you on that one, though, John. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of, uh, he's very contentious, but some of his his writing, particularly the pieces which he did for uh, Horizon magazine, Cyril Connolly's magazine, in the... Second World War and the post-war period, they're wonderful. I mean, his, his essay on Dickens is still, I think, one of the best things that we have on that novelist. Uh, he pointed out <laughs> that Dickens was very interested, for instance, in Sado, masochism. And his essay on boys' comics, for instance, uh, is, is, is classic. It's still cited as one of the, the founding impulses to what we now call cultural studies. His essay on Swift and the politics of language, you know, sort of, it is masterly. So, in fact, I, at a journal, I mean, he did a lot of hack work, and, he, and sometimes he's just writing, you know, to put bread on his table. He didn't make a lot of money in his lifetime until he was dying with Animal Farm in 1984, and then it was too late. I mean, posthumously, he's made millions, probably even billions, I don't know, but not for himself, and not for, as it were, those dear and dear ones uh, in his lifetime. But I, I think the journalism, it's very hard to actually get people interested in journalism that's you know, 100 years old, uh, 50 years old, uh, even that's yesterday's journalism sometimes. But I, I think it stands up. 
Now, Orwell's Nose, your biography, takes a format of the, I suppose, the smell narrative. You lost your own sense of smell, I think it was about three or four years ago, and that got you interested in unearthing the smells in different books and novels. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, it's a fascinating subject to me, and I think probably there's a lot more of it around than than you think, but it's called anosmia, which sounds like it ought to be the name of a flower. But what happens is that you get a virus or bang on the head, or it can be the precursor of very serious diseases. In my case, it was sinusitis, the curse of mucus. Uh, anyway, what happens is the virus gets in there, destroys all your kind of nerves in, in, in your ears, nose and throat. And that's a condition I shall be in for the rest of my life. And what you end up with is you can only taste through the tongue, hot, cold, uh, sweet and sour. And those acts have this very, very strange sense that they've been detached from the real world. If things, you can't smell things, they're not real. Quite a few commit suicide, you know, because they feel they've lost contact. The reason I did this book, or was knows, was because his writing is so odorous. So at the end of the book, I have smell narratives, you know, the smells in three or four of his most important works. And every page, you know, there's this kind of, as it were, sort of nasal you have to read through the nose if you're reading. Oh, well, fortunately, I can remember what it was like to smell, you know, sort of uh, socks, for instance. He, he was fascinated by socks and smelly feet. And, you know, I can remember, but, but in fact, if you can't smell, it's, it's almost like you're in a cell, you know, sort of a, a, a kind of sensory deprivation cell. It's, it's very, very kind of, uh, but not painful, but it, it does actually change things. But as I say, you know, most people... If you bring it up, uh, say, well, you're lucky that you're not blind, deaf, or you know, haven't lost your sense of touch or so on. But it is, it is quite interesting, and really for those who, who have it, a rather serious condition. I imagine it changed how you interacted with the world in, in every shape and form. So obviously reading became, a, you know, reading and what jumped out to you was a smell because you were so missing it in your own life. Was that it? Well, it has two effects on me. The first is that you tend to forget how smell controls memory. Most things that you remember have associated smells, which you may or may not be immediately conscious of when you when you remember them. But for me, what happened when I lost my sense of, of smell was that I couldn't control involuntary memory. They're bloody, you know, it's, it's like there are about 50 or 60 films running in my head simultaneously. And you realise that smell doesn't just evoke memory, mm. it controls memory. And so, in fact, one has this kind of rather undisciplined mass of, of associative memories rushing into your brain. Again, it's, it's not uninteresting, you know, and it's certainly not sort of a kind of sort of a thing that you'd call the Samaritans about or go to accident emergency with. But uh, it, it happens. I'm, you know, it, it's part of what the Victorians called organic decay, which they used to put on death certificates. I think, it, I think that's a bad description of a lot of causes of death. But we all read, uh, John, with our own kinks and obsessions and passions, don't we? We focus on, any reader will focus on certain types of aspects of a book based on their own prejudices or their own kinks, if you will. You put it very well. And it's absolutely right, of course. It's one of the reasons why one treasures reading as you know, one of the experiences of one's life. You know, the fact it is so independent, you know, for a long time when I was very young, uh, as a lecturer, I used to mark A-level scripts, you know, to make enough money to go on holiday in the summer. And uh, 
one of the things that really distressed me was that even at the very best schools, what would happen is you get about 30 scripts from a class and they'd all be parroting what they'd been trained to say. It was almost like they'd been drilled, you know, as so they'd been reading, instead of reading Middlemarch, they were reading Mao's Little Red Book or something. Karl Marx's Das Kapital, Volume 1, if, if they were in the Soviet bloc. That, I think, is right, because, it, I mean, as you say, at, at its most rewarding, reading is incredibly sort of singular. It's what you do for yourself. People used to say, I'm going to university to read literature or read English, if they're talking about the subject. They don't say that now. They say they're going to go and study uh, English, which I think is a mistake, really. But no, I mean, I think I'm, I'm all for freedom of reading. There were a string of women who slept with Orwell once, but preferred not to do it again. You've some terrific stuff on George Orwell's relationships and general engagement with women, but it does make first troubling reading. Um, his first biographer, who I think you mentioned earlier, DJ Taylor, stated that Eileen, his first wife, is one of the larger silences in or- Orwell's studies and that his one of his other girlfriends, Brenda, concluded he had an ir- irresistible physical need to possess women. Yeah, like he li- he clearly liked rough play and was maybe is it too strong to say he was a bit of a sexual predator. There's certainly episodes and um, you know from Crick onwards biographers have trodden very carefully about this. For some reason if he was in the wilds if he was in the country the smells drove him to what can only be called a kind of a pitch of erotic sort of uh, fury. He's actually sort of uh, at least one occasion possibly two which I talk about, where in fact he would have been regarded as, you know, as you say, a predator, perhaps even a, uh, something coming very close to, to a rapist. One of his early lovers, who loved him, but in fact couldn't stand him because of the way in which he made love, uh, said that reading the description of him and her making love in the Bluebells in 1984 was like being torn limb from limb. And you, you mentioned D.J. Taylor and his treatment of Eileen, who was a very pro she was a very, very brilliant woman. She ended up looking after chickens and goats. You know, he he loved to have a kind of small holding menagerie of farm animals. He knew about animal farms. But you know, she would actually have to get the chicken eggs. She hated eggs. And she suppressed everything. She was a she was gonna go on to do terrific work at uh, UCL, oddly enough, on uh, children's imagination. I mentioned earlier the uh, his essay on children's comics. A lot of that came from Eileen, I think. But there she was, you know, she was subjugated, rather like a 19th century wife. That side of Orwell is hard to come to terms with. I think, you know, everyone, I think, agrees that Julia in 1984 is Sonia. But in, in 1984, Julia is a, an absolute dolt. You know, she she's stupid. You know, she falls asleep when he starts to explain the theory of oligarchical relativism. I'm not sure it's very exciting, but, I mean, she's just a vagina, a politically motivated vagina. And that was Sonia, who was a very brilliant woman. She could speak French uh, very fluently. And, you know, she was an intellectual and a very, very clever woman, as I say, from you know her early days when she worked on Horizon, Sonia Brownell. Uh, to her last years. And, and he, he, to some extent, projects a caricature of her in this novel, which must have hurt her immensely. So, I mean, his relationship to the opposite sex 
you know, it, it, it is in fact troubling at times, as, as you say. But then, you know, what relevance does it have to the work he's left us? You know, we should trust the tale, not the teller. Yeah, it, it struck me as I was re- reading through the biography that there are so many complex scenarios associated with um, George Orwell, whether it was his time in Burma, his time in the, at, during the Spanish Civil War. There's lots of grey areas where you could make these um, gross presumptions that he was doing this, that and that. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Does that really matter when we think that we have such superb books, superb novels? I suppose not. I mean, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I quite like to to like the authors I admire. But it's not uh, an ideal world. No, it's not. No, but but there, but there are those that are, that are probably sort of more to one's liking than others. I mean, it's a it's a very sort of um, interesting question. But I've noticed that the writers I most like they tend to be in the nineteenth century: Thackeray, Trollope, George Eliot, Hardy. I admire them humanly. I, can, I, I admire them for what they were as people. And there are others who, who you sort of take against. All is difficult, I think. Uh, but then we don't know him. I think uh, you began this you know, very interesting conversation by saying that there is something elusive and shadowy about him, and that we never probably get to the point that we're close to him as a person. Whatever help we get from biographies or from his own you know, sort of uh, his own works, which are very often, you know, self-revealing in some ways. Would you agree with that? I think you have to have an open mind and park your prejudices. Yeah, except, I mean, there's prejudices. Well, there's prejudices and there's there's big, big prejudices. Let's put it that way. um, I'm just wondering, when um, Orwell went over to uh, cover the Spanish Civil War, you you pitch up a very interesting question. You ask, did he want to be a journalist or did he want to fight? And you write somewhere that Orwell found active service to be something of a tonic. It's a hard one to figure out and it's a hard one to make out what exactly he got up to because clearly he wasn't close to losing any limbs or anything like that. No. I mean, one of the things he liked about it was that uh, you lived in, a, effectively, the trenches were ditches, you know, covered with mud. He had very vivid descriptions in homage to Catalonia about the physical nature of uh, modern warfare. And I think he just, he liked that aspect of it, you know, sort of being in the, in the dirt of war. Uh, he was, in fact, uh, gallant, I think. He was shot in the throat. What is odd, though, is that he went, he went over there, perhaps in order to get the various passes and, and permissions that you needed. He did say he was going as a journalist, but it's quite clear that his underlying motive was to get out there and do something. He was connected with the Independent Labour Party at that time. He hated institutions, but occasionally uh, he threw in his lot with them. And when he got there, of course, it's quite evident that he wanted to fight. He chose to fight with the anarchists uh, centred in, in Barcelona. And I think that was very much his, you know, he'd hated, as I say, institutions. And, you know, the, the International Brigade was too institutionalised for his taste. It was Marxist and they had structures of authority and not very much kind of equality between the ranks. And he, he was attracted by the by the anarchists because, in fact, they'd, they'd abolished ranks. Everyone had the same rank. It meant, of course, they were absolutely useless in some ways as, as, as soldiers I mean, because they weren't organized and they had lousy equipment because, in fact, the Russians uh, didn't trust them. Uh, so it, it was interesting. I mean, he, but on the other hand, he, he did put his life on the line and he despised some fellow writers for you know, being very brave you know, with the pen 
but not terribly brave when it came to doing what he'd done, you know, sort of uh, uh, going up there and into the fray and uh, fighting for what he believed in. How did you explain the enduring success of 1984? I know somewhere you quote a YouGov list of the top 10 books that have added to how we value humanity. And number one was a Bible, two was uh, Origin of Species and three was A Brief History of Time. Uh, 1984 is number five. I found that quite surprising. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's an interesting book. Uh, it's obviously about 1948. It's about, you know, as, as he saw it, you know, what we think of as austerity Britain and what he saw as the, the tyranny of uh, the Labour Party. You know, it, it's OK in wartime to have a command politics and economy, but in peacetime it infringes people's sense of liberty. What is wonderful about 1984, though, is it foresaw ideological tyranny and the closing of minds which uh, oppressive totalitarian regimes require i mean it was orwell who saw that it was very fine when these new televisions were coming along he was interested in them but he said you know sooner or later the televisions are going to be watching you not just cctv but every aspect of what you thought of as your private life we are already on the on the brink of that happening. I mean, we, our freedoms are gradually being sort of uh, eroded by constant surveillance technology. And one, one sees that. And one, one thinks, you know, that here's Orwell writing in 1950. And he foresaw, you know, what in fact we see as a major threat to our way of life uh, almost 70 years later. So, in fact, it was genuinely that very rare thing, a prophetic book, a book which did see what H.G. Wells called future history. I mean, in some ways it was wrong. I mean, 1984, which I remember very well, was nothing like the novel 1984 by by George Orwell. But there are certain things in it, you know, which, in fact, he, he just really did have his finger on the pulse. You know, he, at the end of the book, he's very pessimistic. I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, I don't know what you know, sort of kids reading it for the first time when they get to the end and they realise this guy is saying that it's all going to end horribly with you know, a boot stamping on the face forever, as O'Brien says in the novel. It's, it's, it's very interesting what you raise. You know that that this is a novel which has achieved almost biblical status, yet it's there. You know, it's still making loads of money. You describe his socialism as a type of battleground. I'm just wondering, within that battleground, he seemed to have been quite obsessed with money and certainly quite frustrated with his lack of it. He hung around with the Eton sorts, was privately educated and had a lot of high-rolling friends. Do you think it's fair to say he was obsessed with money? He, had, he certainly had, a, as it were, an ostentatious facade of poverty. I mean... Uh, Malcolm Muggery said the first time he met him, he thought that he was a tramp. You know, they, they were at a good restaurant at the time. Uh, you know, all he needed was his trousers held up with a piece of string. And you know, he did cultivate a certain kind of aggressive shabbiness. At the same time, you know, he was very, you know, he was he was really quite sort of connoisseurish and other things. His attitude to money is very is, is interesting. I mean, he sort of he he went to eat, but then deliberately dropped out of Eton, as far as I can see. He didn't go to university, even though he must have been one of the cleverest boys in England, and chose instead to go into the Indian 
police service, the IPS in Burma, effectively as a, as a servant of, uh, of, of empire. And yet he, ha- he hated empire. He thought it was a racket. Why did he do that? I don't know. Those sort of biographers explained you know, why he should have spent the best five years of his life and ruined his health working for something that he despised, the British Empire. As to his attitude to money, which you ask about, well, he, at the end of his life, he you know, he did suddenly realize that he'd struck gold with Animal Farm and with 1984. Um, it's a nice question as, as to, if had he been rich, how different he would have been. But he did cultivate very rich men. I mean, he, a lot of his friends, as you say, were sort of uh, well off. David Astor, for instance, who is a patron, the owner of The Observer, and did a lot for Orwell uh, in his post-war years, was, was hugely rich. And a lot of people, in fact, came through for him when he needed money, uh, sort of uh, would give him you know, quite large amounts of money you know, to pay for his health, for instance. He, was, he needs to be in sanatoriums you know, most of his adult life from, time, from time to time because, in fact, he had this awful propensity to pulmonary tubercular problems. He was certainly drawn to people with money very often. A lot of his friends were extremely well off. But at the same time, he didn't seem to want to flash it around very much himself or to acquire it very much himself. He just, he's paradoxical and complex in that way. What do you think? Um, complex, to put it mildly. I'm just wondering, I haven't read Burmese Dates, his 1934 novel. How good is it? People usually see it as as not his best work. And, and you know, I'd, I'd agree with that. I... I think his best novel is uh, coming up for air. Uh, I think you said somewhere that it was very, it's his most uh, aromatic novel. Yeah, uh, certainly Burma is it's like opening a scent bottle. Not for me, but for you. Okay. Uh, the smell references, the odoriferousness uh, of, of the novel is, is almost overpowering in its, uh, in its strength, which is interesting. And you know, he's sort of, um, I suppose, uh, Burmese days is interesting as reflecting what he thought of, of imperial Britain. It's, it's a, it satirizes you know, the whole thinking which lay behind the empire upon which the sun never sets. But then what was Orwell doing there for five years? He was very good. One of the things he discovered was that there weren't that many people in the subcontinent. And the way in which the British authorities kept control of this vast territory with all its you know, heterogeneous elements and peoples was by espionage, by using a spy system. He was, he was a spy master when he was in, yeah. in Burma. What he had to do was to get intelligence, as they called it, uh, from local sources. And he had, right the way through Burma, you had these kind of informants who fed it back up to people like Orwell, who then processed it and then knew exactly what to do. It wasn't killing elephants that he was, he was there to do. What he was there to do was to be in a sense, a kind of big brother. And he learned so much about the way you can tyrannize by using the intelligence services. In that respect, I think Burmese days is very interesting because if you ask the question what interested him in, in those years he spent in Burma, it was, it was really how efficient as a you know, kind of gigantic kind of espionage system uh, the British Empire was. You write that one of the fascinating features of Orwell's fiction, read in the context of his life, is its savagery. I thought that was very interesting. Can uh, you talk me savagery. through that? Yeah. 
I can't remember saying that. Sounds interesting. (laughs) It was as you were writing about Burma and um, the flogging, etc. Yeah, I know. He liked the cane. Uh, I think he was a flagellomaniac. A lot of people that came through the British public school system, of course, they did actually have a very, very strong kind of uh, relationship with flogging. One of the few glimpses we have uh, of him in in Burma is is actually lashing out with a heavy cane which he carried all the time all the time and there are pictures of him in Burma and all the officers in the IPS have got canes and to this day in fact in in India they control riots with, by canes not not by rifles something they inherited from their English oppressors there are so many descriptions of caning in his um, in his uh, writing, particularly when he's writing about his own prep school days, you know, he sort of—I think—you can pick up, you can, you can deduce that it it was real to him, you know, that what it was like to cane and what it was like to be caned. You mentioned the word kinks earlier, but I think that's just one of his kinks. Welcome back to Talking Books. 
I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm joined by British academic, columnist and author John Sutherland, whose latest publication, Orwell's Nose, a pathological biography, has just been published by Reaction Books. Where John concludes, the tragedy of Orwell's life was that when at last he achieved fame and success, he was a dying man and knew it. I asked John about his own engagement with Orwell's fiction and what he made of a clergyman's daughter, a book he describes as bitter. It is. I think it's very hard on his sister, who's the heroine. And uh, it's very hard on the place where his uh, family finally resided, Southwold in Suffolk, which is very, very clearly depicted in this novel. He hated Southwold, but it's rather hard to think of places he loved, probably parts of London, Hampstead he liked, I think, when he lived there. Um, his life was going very badly at that time, and he was virtually sort of uh, an invalid while he was writing it. He got pneumonia. He had several attacks of pneumonia, but this one was, was very, very dangerous. And so he was just there, you know, he didn't have a job. It was humiliating. He was judged to be a failure. His family you know, felt that someone they'd spent so much money on, self-sacrificingly, they didn't have a lot of money. There he was just lounging around the house. And, and there's a kind of revenge element in it, which I don't like, though it is very rich in smells, funny enough. I mean, the, the heroine, or at least the book describing the heroine, has one of the richest, uh, smell narratives I could follow and and uh, chronicle. So, yeah, it's it's an angry book. Mm. Uh, but there seemed to have been a lot of shame and disappointment in general, frustration running through his family history. His sister Avril definitely got the short straw when it came to whether it was her education or a role in the family. And the mum didn't get on well with the dad and literally didn't want him to touch no, her. They no. had no sexual relationship at all. No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, uh, his mother was, was French through and through. His father uh, was in the opium department uh, when he was working, uh, supplying opium to countries like China to be stupefied continentally by it as a result of the opium wars. And it was a family which was certainly sort of uh, uh, uncomfortable with itself. Uh, and I, I think Avril got a very raw deal. She was very interesting woman. I, used, I heard a couple of times talking on the on the radio about him. She said on one occasion that she recalled playing French cricket with him, except he would never give up the bat. And that, that rings true. And at the end, end of his life, he almost summoned her, summoned her up to Jura, where he was with Richard, his little boy, after his wife Eileen died. And she became almost a kind of skivvy. You know, she actually, there she was, she was looking after the boy, she was doing the housekeeping up there on this kind of far-flung Scottish place. And yet, I don't think he left her anything in his will, or at least she she got a very raw deal. And as I say, she's clearly depicted Avril as the heroine in The Clergyman's Daughter, as his father is is depicted as well. One thing that really surprised me was his his decision to be buried in a country church, considering he did claim to be an atheist. How do you swear, how how do you make sense of that? Well, he said that he would be happiest uh, if he'd lived in the 18th century and been a, a country parson. I think there is this nostalgia 
as there is in Swift, his great idol, mm. uh, for a past which the main attraction was that it wasn't modern. It didn't have those aspects of modern life that he most despised, you know, class systems, class warfare, technology, uh, all the things that complicate, uh, you know, particularly sort of ideologies, oppressive ideologies like Marxism, Nazism, or whatever. So he wanted to go back to what you might call a kind of simpler life, uh, where things were settled. I think he calls it the golden place in, in, in some of his work. And he's very paradoxical. There you are, as you, as you say, there's this man who is certainly atheistic to the core, and then, but then he wants to die. He doesn't want to be cremated. He wants to be buried in a churchyard, in the same churchyard that the great patron David Astor, who arranged the burial, is, is laid to rest. It, it, it's very interesting. I mean, no, there's nothing about Orwell which isn't interesting. There's yeah. nothing dull about him, but there's an awful lot which is mysterious. I'm wondering, can we describe him as an unlucky man? Uh, yeah, he was unlucky in the sense that uh, he didn't live longer. I mean, he's got this guy dying in his mid-40s. I'm in my late 70s, I've got to say, what would he have done with the years I've had? Well, he would have got, I mean, he done very interesting things. He would have been a major political force. You know, he would have been a giant. Uh, as it was, he, you know, he died wretchedly in that UCL hospital coughing. Perhaps he was killed, as some said, by the Soviet Union or MI6. Or There are a lot of paranoid theories about um, how he died. And, you know, it, it is very sad. You know, if only this antibiotics had come a year earlier. They tried streptomycin on it, but they got the they got the dosage wrong. But if in fact, you know, that wonder drug, that silver bullet, had come a year earlier, you know, he would have he would have lasted. I think perhaps, you know, as I say, one can only fantasise you know, the wonderful things. Uh, he would have done. It would have been interesting to have him writing during the Cold War, wouldn't it? As you know, there's a great tug of war as to whether, you know, which side he's on. Uh, Mm. (laughs) You know, the the socialists give a little pull and and the conservatives and Republicans in America give another little pull. And they're not sure who owns it. But of course, that's a very kind of Orwellian situation. He did not want to be owned. Every institution he belonged to, even those that were paying him quite a reasonable uh, salary, like the BBC, yeah, he left. He couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear having to kowtow, you know, to be obedient. Uh, his longest uh, service was, of course, with uh, Imperial Police in India, but he left those before, in fact, he qualified for a pension. If he'd only stayed another year, he would have had a bit of money for the rest of his life. As I say, he's, he doesn't belong to anyone. And uh, how he, you know, to go back to what you say, how he would have years have reacted in the Cold War, which in a sense he predicted. I mean, you know, the the world divided into three great superpowers in 1984. How he would have, uh, as it were, responded to that is is something one can only speculate about. I miss him. You know, I wish I wish he had lived. I think the world would be better if all had lasted another 30 years, 40 years. So when you hear words like Orwellian, and so on, and all the different words that he introduced into the English language. Do you think in some way it hasn't done him the service that he, he a just service, so to speak? Because uh, it's almost a cliche. Yeah, I mean, he, there are very few writers who do become, as it were, sort of politically influential. I mean, very few writers of literature, I mean, or, or journalists come to that. 
He has. I mean, you mentioned the word Orwellian. It's quite interesting the writers who do, in fact, become adjectives, like Dickensian, for instance, or Laurentian. <laughs> and uh, very few women. You don't talk about Wolfian writers in the same way you talk about Orwellian disciples. But uh, I think, I don't know, it, it, it is what you might call you know, a moot point. If somebody was to return to some of his earlier novels and look at maybe like the likes of The Road to Wigan Pear or some of the other ones that aren't as, you know, that don't have the limelight of Animal Farm in 1984, what would be the ones you would get them to read? Uh, what's the doorway into uh, into your know, Orwell's work? Well, I don't know. I would suggest, propose, that you uh, read Down and Up in Paris and London, which in fact is his first attempt to you know, understand the full nature of the world around him. You know, most of us in fact seal ourselves off in our little class levels and don't really think much about what's going on below us. We're much more interested in what's going on above us. Uh, and that, that, that's a good way into Orwell, I think, and it's very easily read. Thereafter, I think, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know. As I say, people have their, their personal favourites. Mine is Coming Up for Air, which is a novel he wrote in the year of my birth, in fact, 1938, which is about a fat insurance salesman who makes a small winning. He's a betting man. And so he goes off to try and discover his own past. He goes back to the village where he was happy by the Thames uh, and passionate about fishing, you know, wonderful descriptions of, of angling in the novel. And what he discovers is that it's gone forever. A very despairing novel. And then he goes back to you know, his unhappy life as a wage slave. But it's a very, very interesting comic novel in many ways. And, and you know, George Bowling is a, is a kind of you know, rather fat, tubby man. But it's also a lament. And I think you could say a lot of Orwell could be summed up uh, in the two words, it's a lament for a lost England, you know, sort of a past which which had a lot going for it, but is now lost forever. Uh, and the future is what 1984, Animal Farm, the dystopian vision of his later work.
and that was British academic, writer and journalist John Sutherland. Orwell's Nose, a pathological biography, is published by Reaction Books and retails for just under 17 euros in hardback. I have to say, for anyone with an interest in human kinks, this is the book for you. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with the prescient words of George Orwell from The Road to Wigan Pier, published in 1937. We are living in a world in which nobody is free, in which hardly anybody is secure, in which it is almost impossible to be honest and to remain alive. Interesting words indeed. Good night. Talk 106 to 108.